You are listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the Bible one book at a time, and we are in the middle of the book of Esther. I'm Drew Kaiser, and joining me here is Andrew Kingsley, and we have not done this in a really, really long time. We've just, uh, I think it's been two months. You weren't married the last time we did this. Yeah, you were. I think you were married, but maybe. We've been trying to get through the summer, and it's been difficult to do these. Not to mention we've had all kinds of technical problems with our feed. We may say more about that at the end. There's really not a whole lot to say, except that we still don't have those issues worked out. But we seem to have found the problem, and hopefully we'll get the feed up really soon where people can subscribe to us on iTunes. And that's when we're really going to start promoting this, and hopefully pick up some listeners, but right now we're trying to get some on the bank. Uh, is that the way to put it? To bank them up, sure. I guess is what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. on our website, and the goal is eventually to have 66 books of the Bible surveyed and covered by reading, thinking, and applying the things within them. So, the last episode on Esther had to do with Esther learning about Haman's vicious plot to exterminate the Jews. This message was carried to her by her relative Mordecai, and uh, he brought the news to her and suggested that she should use her position as queen of Persia to save her people. At this time, uh, Esther's ethnicity had not been discovered, but it would soon come out, Mordecai told her, and, and she bravely said that she would go with Mordecai's plan And the last words that we had from her was, If I perish, I perish. And that's where we left off when we talked about the villain of honor. Now, today we're going to talk about the victory of honor. There's a turning point in this episode, and things happen really fast. So we're going to be looking at chapters 5 through 7 of Esther today, carefully reading through them, and uh, we're going to try to survey these as best we can in narrative form because... I don't. I, it just seems like the best way to to try to cover the material is by just telling the story. And we'll start with chapter five after Esther agrees to Mordecai's plan to notify her husband, the king, that these things are coming to pass and that her people are about to die. On the third day, Esther put her royal robes on and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Now this was part of the plan that Esther was very nervous about. Because according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, the king, uh, no one was to go in to see the king without first being called to do it. She knew that her life was in danger by breaking protocol here, but if he extended his scepter the way that he did, then she knew she was safe. And so, verse 2 tells us, She approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And this had to have been a relief to her, because how long had it been since she had last seen him? A month? Mm Mm-hmm. A month that the husband and wife had not even seen each other or been in each other's presence. So this was a great risk to her. Esther says, 
If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And that's as far as she goes so far. You see a lot of wisdom in her plotting here. She's not going to just drop everything all at once, but just kind of sneak up on the problem. So she invites the king and Haman, who is her enemy, to a banquet that she prepares. So she prepares this banquet, and they come, and the king asks her again, what is your request? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And uh, this is the same guy, by the way, that said he didn't want Haman's money, but then took it anyway. So I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, he says things all the time, and uh, I don't really have a lot of faith in in this. I don't think he would have given her half the kingdom. It's just an exaggeration. And so he asks her again, and she says, come to another banquet, and then I will tell you there. So in verse 9, Haman leaves that first banquet joyful and glad of heart. But then he sees Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai doesn't rise or tremble before him, and he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. He goes home. He calls his friends together and whines to them. He whines to his wife, and his wife has this idea. She says in verse 14, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now in the next section, we'll talk a little bit about what that's all about and what the gallows is. But it's an instrument of death for sure. Mm -hmm. They're taking joy and pleasure out of the idea of putting Mordecai to death. Of course, pretty soon, all the Jews would die. So what did it matter? At least in their minds, that's what they were thinking. Now, something else happens. This is a great story. That night, the king remembers, or is, is this, he couldn't sleep. And uh, he did what all kings do when they can't sleep, at least before the days of sleeping pills. He had the uh, government documents brought in and read to him. So he's hearing all these records read. And in the records, an event that we read about in chapter 2, near the end, was brought up where Mordecai revealed a plot to assassinate the king, save the king's life, and uh, he asked if anything had been done for Mordecai. And his servants told him that no, nothing had been done for him. So he asked this question, and the providence of God has really seen so many places, and this is one of the more uh, amusing to me places where God's providence comes into play. The king says, well, who is in the court? And they say, Haman is standing in the court. Now Haman's there, I guess, to ask permission to hang Uh, Mordecai. Mm -hmm. But the king has him called in. And the king asks him, you know, Haman thinks he's talking about him, and the king says, what should I do for somebody to honor them? What, What should I do for a person that the king desires to honor? And Haman thinks he's talking about him. And so this is his answer, chapter 6, verse 7. Haman says, for the man whom the king delights to honor... Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor 
and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And this guy is a psychopath, right? I mean, who... I would say, uh, pay his mortgage. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> do something useful. But his yeah. fantasy is to ride through town on a horse while everybody's bowing down to him, which is precisely why he wants Mordecai dead. Because when he tried to get Mordecai to do it, Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him because he bowed only to the true and living God. So Haman thinks that he is giving the king his you know, Christmas present that he wants. He's making his wish list here, and these are all the things that he wants. And so it had to shock him when after he said all of that, the king said, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So if Haman was in a bad mood because Mordecai did not bow down to him, he really had to be in a bad mood now, because he was going to have to give Mordecai the honors that he thought that he deserved. Well, the next day comes, the day of the banquet that Esther requested with the king and Haman. And this brings us to chapter 7. And again, the king asks the question, What is your request? I'll give you even half the kingdom. And here's what the queen says. Verse 3, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman, then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Now the king is so angry that he gets up in wrath and he leaves the room. And Haman does pretty much what would be natural to a guy in that situation. He falls on his face begging the queen for mercy. But when Ahasuerus returns, probably a little sooner than Haman expected, what he thinks he sees is Haman making a move on his wife. It looks like he's, you know, hanging all over her. He's really begging for his life. And when the king, he he says in verse 8, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And uh, the text says, and this is something else I want to talk about in the next section, As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Really strange... Uh, wording there, and we're not certain exactly what that means, but we'll delve into that a little deeper in part two. But they take him out, and the king orders that Haman be hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai, and Haman does, and he and he dies, and the wrath of the king is abated, and that's the end of chapter seven. A lot of irony in this part of it, but it's a victory for honor. Because the Jewish people, Esther, Mordecai, they were threatened to the brink of extinction and with an amazing turn of events that can be explained only by the providence of God. Now their enemy is dead 
but they still have some more challenges that we'll have to get into in the last part of the of the uh, section on Esther. Let's back up a little bit. There, there are a number of interesting little points, little details that, that we breezed over in the first part. And uh, we want to go back over these. And, and I want to back all the way up to the scene where Esther is um, approaching Ahasuerus or Xerxes, whatever you want to call him, without... Um, without the invitation. So she's breaking protocol, which is dangerous anytime you're dealing with a Persian king. Mm-hmm. He can he can execute you on the spot. And, you know, wives are disposable with this guy. We've already seen that from chapter one. She's worried about it because she tells Mordecai that she doesn't want to do it even on behalf of her people at first. And she makes a statement, if I perish, I perish. It means she at least sees a possibility of dying. So she doesn't know what's going to happen when she walks in that room unannounced. And uh, she comes in, and it just, the story tells it really straightforward. Um, You know, everybody's praying for her. She's been preparing for this. And uh, she walks in, and he receives her, uh, the text says she won favor in his sight, and he held out his scepter, which means you're not going to die today, <laughs> I guess. So, you know, that's pretty straightforward in the text. I, I just wanted to add for this section that there is a tradition that made its way all the way into the Septuagint, which is the very influential Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus and the disciples carried around. Uh, there is this tradition that made it in there, and I don't, I don't really think it's inspired. It's not in our Old Testaments, so it's not inspired, but it's very possible that when she went in, she fainted, mm-hmm. and this was given by possibly rabbinical tradition, or you know, the rabbis maybe as an interpretation of why the king was so quick to receive her and so friendly to her, uh, maybe that fainting spell caused him to show compassion to her instead of being mad at her for interrupting whatever it was that he was doing that was so important at the time. Um, But the Septuagint basically says that she went in and she fainted and he kissed her tenderly. Hmm. And then it picks back up with where our text does. So, you know, I I find that interesting and possible. I don't really know that that's what happened. It seems possible because probably the whole thing behind someone coming to the king unannounced is the king wants people to recognize how great he is, or how great he thinks he is anyway. And so if somebody comes in and they're so upset that they pass out because they're so worried about what you're going to do to them, then probably the king's ego is going to be appeased Right, that's exactly the kind of thing that he's into. Yeah, and he's going to think, well, she knows I could kill her. And she, you know, she knows that I might. And she's she recognizes how awesome I am. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's exactly that would what keep he's looking from, for. Yeah. As long as everybody knows that he is the most important guy in the world, 
and he doesn't mind. And and I think we've been over the fact that before these events took place, but after the events of chapter 1, he suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Greeks that he went down there. You know, every Persian king, and I guess every king of any empire... When he comes on the throne, he's going to show. He wants to show the world that he can conquer new territory. Mm-hmm. And after Vashti left him, or he vanished, or whichever way you look at it, he went down and tried to destroy the Greeks. And that little small band of city states sent him packing, mm-hmm. and he had a much larger army. And so he was humiliated by that. And we're looking at a guy with a lot of deep-seated insecurities. Yep. So maybe she had a fainting spell, and that was all he needed. She was very terrified of this whole thing. Yeah, well, and something so, uh, won her favor with the king. It doesn't say exactly what, but something, whether it was her demeanor or something she said, something she did, somehow she won favor with the king. And it could have been that he just saw her and had pleasant memories of her and thought well of her. So just the side of it. was her. his wife. Yeah. I mean, he seems to have forgotten this. Uh, yeah. Esther must have been a very charismatic individual because, you know, everybody that she runs into, Haman included, mm-hmm. loves this woman. I mean, yeah. the, the text doesn't get in. It's not written like a novel where it gives you all these kind of details and what's going on in the characters' minds. But their actions show that they give a lot of deference to Esther and uh, even even before she becomes queen. So yeah. that had to play a part in it, too. We just don't know, but it's it's fun to talk about. I got something I want to ask you about, as a matter of fact. Okay. Um, we talked a little bit about it in between. But the whole scene, right when Haman is, I guess, found out. And I don't know if this is where you're about to go next or not. I don't want to leave anything out. But this whole scene where Haman's found out, Esther accuses him... Um, this, well, I guess my first question is going to be, um, as soon as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Yeah. Uh, we talked about really, that a little bit, but... It's a very strange <clears throat> wording, and we're learning in these three books that we've covered, we're, we're learning a lot about the Persians. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, through the Bible anyway... What we learn is just bits and pieces, incidentals that are given to us as a part of the story. And uh, these documents also, another thing about them is they seem to be written from Persian uh, records, which may explain why the name Yahweh is not given in the entire book of Esther, although there are various ways to work him in and suggest that, that God is behind this whole thing. And... I think what we have here is probably a a Persian euphemism for for death or execution. They had a lot of these rituals. They were more concerned about um, ritualistic cleansing than actual cleansing. I mean, you know, dirty hands were a problem, but the real problem was whether or not you were ritualistically clean or or unclean. Mm Mm-hmm. And the the worst thing, the most contaminating thing in the world to a Persian, these were Zoroastrians, that was the religion they followed, was a dead body. So they would often, if, if there was a corpse, 
they would cover its face in a way to not contaminate the scene. Yeah. You know, it wasn't it didn't have anything to do with germs or sanitation, but some kind of ritualistic cleansing. You know, today, out of respect for the dead, a lot of times you'll see in the crime shows or whatever, them pull a sheet over the dead body that's or whatever. What I was just about you to know, say. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that's okay. But, you know, that that's a different thing. That's to show respect for the dead. Yeah. And this was more as a as a way to keep the dead from contaminating everybody around. Yeah. Just by looking at that face of the corpse, you could contaminate it. So here's how the language got going. You know, they had this practice for ages of, you know, a dead body, you naturally would cover the face of the dead body. And then not wanting to talk about death, eventually a euphemism arose, covered his face, which everybody understood to be to mean he was killed. He di- he died or he was killed. You know, like we say, he passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that mean? Well, we all understand that to mean that he died, and we just don't want to say he died. Mm-hmm. He passed away, or we have other euphemisms for death as well because it's such a cold reality. Yeah, and theirs was covered his face, and it just kind of crept in here because it was written from a Persian point of view. It's not in the Persian language, it's written in Hebrew, but these uh, euphemisms and idioms and stuff from the Persian background come through. So this is kind of the idea as soon, so the king walks in, thinks that Haman is trying to make a move on Esther, and so he, he yells, I'm sure he's yelling, will you assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as well, soon as he gets done saying that, or while he's saying it, or before he's even done, somebody has killed Haman. There's a yeah. possibility that that's what's that, going on here. That would explain covered his face. Yeah. Now, then that raises another problem that I'm sure if you're listening, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Haman was hanged on his own gallows. And that, you know, is something that sticks in our memory because this guy, and this is an English thing, but... His name is Haman, which sounds like hangman, mm-hmm. and it makes it easy to remember. He yeah. died by being hanged on his own gallows. And, you know, it's that that's possible. I'm not going to say that that did not happen. But here's another possibility. The word translated gallows literally means tree or wood or stake. Now, you have to go back into these cultures and look at their means of execution as you interpret these things. And um, the word does not mean gallows like you, you know, draw when you're playing the little hangman game. Yeah. Um, it means a tree or a stake. Mm-hmm. And generally, those, those items are used for impaling victims. And we know from... We talked about Ezra. We got into some Persian execution methods, and it was kind of a precursor for the cross that the Romans would later perfect. But we know that Persians, it was a common practice among Persians to impale people. That's yeah. what they did uh, to kill folks. And certainly, uh, it makes sense if there's a body, you already have a dead body. And this is something that you brought out when we talked about Ezra. 
the Persians put them on a stake because they didn't want a dead body defiling the ground. Yeah, and we which just, goes back to what we said a moment ago. You mm-hmm. know, it's um, they they had means of execution designed to keep dead bodies from coming into contact with the earth, which they believed to be holy. Mm-hmm. They believed fire was holy, a water was holy, the air was holy, um, the earth was holy. These mm-hmm. elements to them were very holy, whereas dead bodies. Was very were very contaminating, yeah. So they had to come up, you know, with some interesting ways to dispose of the bodies. Mm-hmm. And um, if they could put a body up on a stake and just leave it there, the elements and the birds of prey would dispose of it, and in their minds, it never came into contact with the earth. Yeah. They had a very different mentality than we do, who bury the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, burying the dead would be horrific to them, to their yeah. minds. They would never dream of doing something like that. And this is, uh, we said, the precursor to crucifixion. Mm-hmm. The Romans picked this up, but they just picked it up because they saw, hey, people, this this brings up a, a horrible death. We can use yeah. this. They weren't interested in the ritualistic side of it. They were interested in how painful it was and they adapted it for their own purposes to show their power and might. Mm-hmm. And so Christ was crucified, not for these reasons that we're talking about here. And this wasn't a crucifixion, it was an impalement, but they're related. And they, mm-hmm. The impaling kind of led to crucifixion. Um, so this is different from how I've always pictured Esther, because there's a very strong possibility. Because I'm thinking, as soon as the word left the mouth of the king, they like grabbed him. You know, and they like held him, they arrested him, and then they hung him on the gallows. Yeah, you think like, they put him, put a rope around his neck, like in the old westerns. And, yeah. You know, uh, you got any last words, and then they dropped the cloth over his head and yeah. kicked the bucket out from under his feet or something like that. Yeah. And that's that's not what happened here. So you know, he's most likely killed instantly when the king sees him with Esther. And then he's impaled on a stake, as was the custom for Persians. That would explain that would explain the phrase "covered his face" That's and really why cool. it comes before his being hanged on the gallows. Hmm. But it's not one hundred percent sure. We all we know is either he was hanged alive on the gallows, meaning he was impaled alive, or after he was killed, he was he was uh, uh, impaled to keep him from coming into contact with the earth, and yeah. and. The more merciful one would be the idea where they kill him first. Because this impalement, as we talked about, was a vicious and, and slow death. And uh, these Persians were cruel. You know, you mentioned uh, when we talked about Ezra, and I still can't get over <laughs> Darius. Uh, I don't think I ever noticed this until we were going through the books. But uh, when Darius, you know, told this guy, Tatanai, who didn't want to help the Jews rebuild the the temple or, uh, you know, um, restore their worship. They were trying to build. And uh, he said, you help them out or I'm going to come over there and tear your house down and impale you with the beam of your own house. Yeah. And And then your house will be made a dunghill. Yeah, and then I'm going to turn your house into a dunghill. A refuse heap. Um, but that that king came after Xerxes, the one we're talking about here. So uh, it's all related.
Okay, for applying the text from this episode, I've got a pretty obvious one that probably everyone has thought about. It's with Haman and this, uh, when the king asked him what should be done for the person the king delights in, and Haman instantly is thinking, okay, he's talking about me, what do I want? And he really goes through all these great things, you know, put him on the king's horse and the king's robe, put a crown on his head, let everybody uh, bow down to him. And he's really, you know, wanting to exalt himself here. And then obviously with the answer that he gets from the king is, well, great, go do that for Mordecai. Uh, it's very humbling for him. And it reminds me of Matthew twenty three twelve, where Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And I don't know that there's any, maybe with uh, some of the kings that, say that they are uh, greater than God or that they are God and immediately get killed. Um, I'm thinking of one in Herod. Acts, yeah, where he gets, his body gets eaten by worms immediately. Other than that, you know, I can't really think of a more quick turnaround for this phrase to come to fruition than with Haman, trying so hard to exalt himself and in doing that, you know, just the higher degree that he exalts himself is going to be the higher degree that he is humbled by, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. And I think it's uh, just a really good illustration of how exalting yourself will get you humbled and uh, how doing the other, you know, the opposite will get you the opposite yeah. as well. Haman looks like a fool Yeah. in this story. And there, there's just one reason why. His pride. I mean, mm-hmm. you could say, well, it was because he was trying to destroy God's people. But the only reason he was trying to destroy God's people was his pride. And I'm reminded of something I read uh, by Thoreau, where uh, he said, you know, really the only... I'm paraphrasing, can't remember exactly the way that he put it, but he explained that because of the advances in science, only humility will look wise in the future. And he yeah. was writing in the 19th century, you know, not even dreaming of the kind of technologies that we're enjoying now. Yeah. And he was, and he knew very well that he was talking about science, and he paused there, and he said, uh, only, only in humility will we look wise. If we look, if if we're proud of this, we'll look really foolish on down the road when everybody discovers all this other stuff. Yeah, and that's so true because we can talk and boast about all the things, space exploration and medical technologies that are going to look so ridiculous a hundred years from now, mm-hmm. maybe twenty years from now, the way things are moving these days. And so, you know, that's just another illustration. Pride makes you look like a complete fool. Mm-hmm. Humility, though, you always seem wise, even when. You don't know anything. You yeah. you can seem wise because humility is is one of the wisest postures you can you can put yourself into. Mm-hmm. And I think that for us to apply that to where we are today, and I always seem to end up here. I don't know how it's just one of those passages that I somehow end up as Philippians to Christ's example of humility. Um, when we talk about how can we humble ourselves. Uh, rather than exalt ourselves, was the exact same way that Christ did. 
you know, Christ's example, his life is, and that's there in Philippians 2 for you to read. Um, that was his example that he left behind, was not looking out for his own interests, but for the interests of other people. His whole existence was based on uh, the interests of others, or his existence as a human, rather, uh, was based on the interests of other people, that is, to give them eternal salvation. And so... Apart, this is not something that would be good for us to do. If you do it, great. If you don't, it's not that big a deal. It's something that's an integral part uh, of our Christian life and something that has to be applied, really. Something that should be being applied for all of us. This idea of exalting other people higher than ourselves, thinking more highly of them than we think of ourselves. Uh, really just trying with a mindset of, what can I do for someone else rather than, you know, because Haman, if the king had asked him, what should we do for Mordecai? The king would have said, well, we should kill him. But when the king asked him, what should we do? Basically, the king says, he thinks the king's asking, what should we do for you? He says, do all these great things for me, but kill Mordecai. You know, we need to be thinking the exact opposite way. You know, not to the point where you know, we're saying, kill me, but honor Mordecai. But this idea of, well, if you do something for me, you don't have to do that much. But if you're doing something for this guy over here, then you need to give him everything. You know, pull out the stops for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's let's take it in a different direction now. Another, um, again, we're using Mordecai. He's just a great psychological study. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a very insecure person. And insecurity is a big part of our world today. And I could talk a long time about why that is. I have some ideas. You know, I think one of the things that we deal with today, you know, in the age of Facebook and the Internet and, you know, every everything is out there and people are presenting all of these personas of themselves rather than the real self. And we tend to look at these profiles of people and we see the world out there and how big it is and how small we are. And I guess it's the other side of humility. I didn't think about this, you know, going into this section, but this is a correction on what you were saying. You know, some people can take humility so far to the end of insecurity. And insecurity, ironically, presents itself as pride many times, as in the case of Haman. Mm-hmm. And insecurity you know, comes when you um, don't feel that you're of any value in and of yourself. Mm-hmm. And the term insecure, if you think about it, means not secure. You're not fastened down and rooted. And there's nothing in this world that roots you better than relationships, principally your relationship with God, and then, of course, your relationship with your you know, family, brothers, sisters in Christ, friends, and so on. So there are five qualities of insecurity that you see in Haman as you look at this. First of all, you see naivete. I think that's the way that you say that word. He was sure. he was naive. Mm-hmm. He he was not um, very wise. You know, it's it's kind of hard to see him go to this first banquet, get excited about being invited to the second banquet and leave with all this joy in his heart. Yeah, he had you know, no idea. What he was skipping coming. down the road, and he was, you know, Esther was already planning his demise. The second quality is fragility. Um, 
you know, immediately when he gets home, he hears about, uh, no, he's on his way home and he's thinking about it and he's all happy and he passes Mordecai and Mordecai doesn't bow down to him and all of a sudden his mood is ruined. Mm -hmm. So he has no anchor in his life, no deep relationships that fulfill him. He has to have people like Mordecai bowing down to him for him to be happy. Mm -hmm. That's a bad sign. Uh, Then there's superficiality. You know, he goes home, and the cure to his pride is to get his favorite yes-men together, along with his wife, (laughs) to talk about the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and the promotions which the king had honored him with, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then, and then on top of that, he mentions Esther's invitation, which is actually going to be the place where he's confronted for his villainous plans against the Jews. Mm-hmm. But this is all superficial. You know, he, he doesn't have any depth in his life. It's all about the awards. This guy's got a trophy case that runs the length of his wall, and he looks at it all the time. And he invites people over to recount to them the splendor of his trophies. Yeah, and who are these people? You know, what do they do? They must be afraid of him because he has some power. Mm -hmm. Um, Then then another quality is selfishness. Now, look at chapter 5, verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Why is that a problem for him? That Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. Uh, you know, Haman is at a higher position. He's got a higher rank. He's obviously more respected than Mordecai. Mm-hmm. But none none of the things can bring him any joy as long as uh, Mordecai is receiving any kind of any kind of credentials on his own. And finally, insecurity uh, also shows up as malice, and you see that in his building a gallows in his backyard to kill somebody. I mean, you think about where this has led. And I do think that we're talking about insecurity here. This guy is, you know, he he's a he's a menace to society mm-hmm. and he's been given power, but he can't handle it because he has yeah. no no anchor in his life, no no good relationships, healthy relationships. We need people to tell us we're wrong from time to time. Yeah. We need to be humbled. But some people can take experiences that humble them, and other people, when those same experiences hit them, it shows up as insecurity. And the difference is in the relationships. If you've got a good relationship with God and you find your value in Him, then, you know, not being the greatest in the world is not going to be a problem for you. Mm -hmm. But if you have no good relationships in your life and you don't get your value from God, then learning that you're not king of the world is going to be a big problem. It's going to send your whole world crashing down on top of you. Yeah, it kind of... Haman makes a really good villain because he's like... He's just perfect for the way we depict villains now, you know, Mm -hmm. like real up on himself and everybody bow to me and all this stuff. Just like a villain straight out of the Disney movie or something. Mm -hmm. But, well, I mean, I just thought of this while you were talking... I imagine that he wants to be just like Xerxes. That's what it's making yeah. me think of. Like, the only thing that's going to make Haman happy, really, is if he is Xerxes. You know, if he has... Because Xerxes, like we talked about, you can't even come see Xerxes unless he calls you. 
if you come in without him calling you, there's a good chance you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. So I think Heyman is wanting that kind of people aren't even good enough to talk to me. And if they want to talk, if they even want to look at me, I've got to call them to come and see me. And if they try and do it without my permission or my asking, they need to die. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what... It's absurd. Yeah. It's ridiculous. How, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that unfortunately was the way that most governments were run in those days. And mm-hmm. we're in better times today, thankfully, because of yeah. some of the things the Greeks were doing around this time and developing eventually mm-hmm. came into the democracies that our world is enjoying today. Uh, anything else? I, that, that about That's some good application, I think. Some good things to chew on. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, we'll be soon getting this feed up on iTunes. And probably if you're listening to this, we're already up on iTunes. Um, We've had a couple technical issues, and we will be up sooner than later. We think we've fixed them. Mm -hmm. No thanks to the iTunes support, but we think we've fixed it. Uh, They're definitely not going to put us on now, since I said that. Uh, They're they're not listening this far into the podcast, I'm sure. But we will hopefully have that straightened out. And uh, we have one more episode on Esther. And then we'll be getting into a new book. Uh, you can check us out at the66.net. And uh, hopefully we've got some some exciting things moving forward here and getting on iTunes. Yeah, and send us some feedback. If you uh, want to tell us what you think about the podcast or you got some questions you'd like for us to address, we like all of that. You can email me at dkaiser at arcoc.com or andrew at akingsley.com at arcoc.com and uh, again our website is the66.net and check us out on Twitter at uh, what is it the 66 podcast is our Twitter handle we're not doing Facebook right now forever and so uh, that's the way that you can keep in touch with us and see what what's going on on the podcast We've got one more for Esther and then we'll be done thanks for listening goodbye